Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. How are we doing? We doing good? Yeah, sweet. Um, today's a big day. A, baptism and worships. That's always huge to celebrate. Also, we are now finishing the book of Hebrews. We are finally at the end. Yeah? Um, chapter 13. We're, we're wrapping this up. We're finishing today. Um, and there's a lot here. And I think it's a great way to go out. So um, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, starting verse 7 and carrying this puppy all the way to the end. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to that, if you have them with you, go for it. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there's some all around the room. Snag one, take it for yourself if you need one and don't have one. Um, while you're flipping there, 13 verse 7, I'm going to let you know a little bit about me, give you some backdrop to Nathan's life. Um, when I grew up, I grew up with three older half-sisters and one younger brother, but that, that's great, big family. I always wanted an older brother. I was always jealous of people who had older brothers. Um, and I think why I wanted that is because I just wanted someone to look up to. That's always been like a thing that we have. We all feel that. Um, and even coming to college, I've always looked for a mentor or a leader, someone to follow, right? Whether it's to be, learn how to be a good student or really just a good person, um, how to be a good boyfriend, a good husband, a good pastor. I look for people in my life that I can follow. Um, and when I was younger, I was really just look, wanted to look up to someone to teach me how to be cool because I wasn't really that cool. And I had to learn the hard way that puka shells aren't that cool. Um, so anyways, I bring that all up because the reality is I think it's in our wiring, in our nature, all of us have this desire to follow something or someone, right? We all have this desire to be led and we all look for leaders in our lives. We look for mentor figures. We look for all of that. And we do that because we want guidance and we want direction. We want direction in life and how to navigate its ups and downs. We want to know what it looks like to live a balanced life as a college student between being in a fraternity and a sorority and academics and athletics and all these things like social life. How do I balance all of these? I need someone to teach me. I want to know how to live a worthy life. Please someone teach me or really just I want to know how to live up the good life and live it up in college. Like we all look for people to teach us how to do that. And more often than not, I think we also look for someone to lead us into solutions, to fix and solve our problems and to teach us how to find a sense of peace and security in the anxieties of life or a sense of wholeness in the brokenness that we experience in our stories, right? The reality is that we are looking for people to follow. And we oftentimes find ourselves in a place where we don't know who or how to follow, right? But what we're going today, Hebrews chapter 13, is what we're going to see in the final chapter is that Jesus is that someone to follow. And we will see that the way of Jesus is better than any other way out there, any other thing to follow, any other person to follow, and that he leads us into a life of peace and a life of wholeness, and that he invites us into a life of unchanging truth, love, and forgiveness. Um, and the people that we follow— the, the life advice, the teaching, the insights, the, all the things that we lean on and build our lives on should point us to Jesus and point us to his unchanging truth and love and forgiveness. Um, 
if you haven't been with us for this entire book of Hebrews, which we're wrapping up today, um, don't worry, we're going to recap a lot of it. But one major theme that I want to put in front of us before we keep going any further, we see it from chapter one all the way to now is this idea that the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to remember is don't drift. Don't drift from the one worthy of following. Don't drift from the way of Jesus. And don't drift into a lifestyle that pulls you away from the gospel and from a life centered on the truths of Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going today. Um, if you are already got your Bibles open, we're starting in verse 7, and we're just going to pick this apart chunk by chunk, um, little by little. There's a lot here, um, but it's good stuff. So verse 7 starts with this. It says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Cool. We're going to stop right there and pick these uh, two verses apart. Um, we see this idea of obeying leaders, imitating their way of life, considering the outcome of their faith. Don't be led away by diverse teachings or eat these foods, whatever that is. Um, but what we see is this contrast between good leaders and good teaching and bad leaders and bad teaching. And the first little exhortation, first little encouragement that the author of Hebrews is making in our passage today is this idea that you want to follow leaders who are following Jesus. Um, now that brings up a great question, right? what makes someone a good spiritual leader? How do I know that they're following Jesus? I think you answer it by asking another question of does their life look like Jesus? Are they imitating the way of Jesus? Um, and let, let me give you an idea of what I mean by this to give you a clear picture. Um, like I said, I've always been looking for mentors and older figures in my life. That's something that I naturally go to. And I think that since I've been following Jesus, the Lord has been ridiculously kind and gracious to me to provide a uh, figures like that in my life, like mentors and leaders, people I consider spiritual leaders and disciples. And it's been really sweet for me, even looking back as I was preparing for this sermon, to see uh, the very specific people that the Lord has put in my life for very strategic times that I've gotten to learn from and follow. Um, and I could list off an entire handful of names of men and women who I would consider these giants in my life that I look up to and whose lives I want to imitate. But I'm going to tell you about one in particular. His name is Aaron West, good friend of mine. Um, he's just a couple years older than me. And Aaron West did everything that I did, but just a few years before me. So he went to Christ Chapel College. I ended up coming to Christ Chapel College. He became a Young Life leader and ended up leading his Young Life team and hopping on a staff. I ended up becoming a Young Life leader, leading the same team after he did and went on part-time staff after him. He also did the residency at Christ Chapel, which led me into this job, and I did that a few years after him. So naturally, he was this person who I was in close contact with, um, who I got to see live out their faith, and who I naturally just looked up to as a leader in my life, of like, you've done all the same things that I've done and want to do. Um, of course, I'm going to follow you and learn from you. Um, and I learned a ton from him. And here's, here's what I think made him a good leader and a good spiritual leader. Um, and here's, yeah, here's what I think gave him so much influence in my life. Aaron... Aaron's whole desire in life was to imitate the life of Jesus. And it wasn't just a desire, but he lived it out, still lives it out to this day. Um, he's a great dude. Uh, but everything from like spending time in the morning uh, in his word, like wanting to sit, sit with Jesus and be with Jesus, to even taking 
um, weekend retreats every now and then to just go be in silence and solitude because his thought, I remember him telling me, was like, man, I'm going to unplug from my phone and go to the quiet, just be with the Lord and pray and all these things because if Jesus did it, Jesus literally escaped the crowds and the hustle of life to go be alone and pray to the Father. If it's good enough for Jesus to do, then it's probably good enough for me to do. He would do things like that. He extended grace to people. He um, was very compassionate. He was the kind of guy that if he, if you told him, man, I like the hat that you're wearing. I think it's pretty dope. He would just take it off his head and give it to you. Like, who does that? Um, he's really sweet. I think one example in particular of something that really stuck out to Aaron and has impacted my life, though, um, this is straight up Jesus. We see Jesus in the Gospels, uh, who Jesus is walking on earth, and a lot of demands are put on him because people are like, oh, you're healing sick people. You're raising people from the dead. Like, a lot of people are going to him. These crowds are surrounding him. He was never in a hurry, though. He had a lot of demands on him. He had a lot of places to be. He was walking intentionally on this earth with a purpose, right, to ultimately go to the cross. Like, he had things to do. Very important guy, but he was never in a a hurry. He was present. He prioritized people, and he was very interruptible is the way that I like to think it. Think about it. He allowed people to interrupt what he was doing to care for them, to listen to them, and to love them. And Aaron West reflected the same thing and still does. Aaron West would let people interrupt his life. If he was studying for his medical school exam and I told him, dude, I just got a flat tire on my bike and I'm 30 miles away from home, he would literally stop what he was doing and come help me out and help me give me a ride back home. Or I've seen him whenever he was a young life leader, stop everything just to go care for one of his guys that he was leading uh, on his team or one of the high school students that we got to walk with would stop everything, no matter how important it seemed, whether he was, whatever he was doing, just to care and love for a certain person. Very interruptible. Um, and whenever I would see these things and I'd compliment him or I saw really good things that he did and that I admired, I'd be like, Aaron, like, that's amazing. He'd always look at me and be like, dude, it's not me. It's Jesus in me. And he was quick to point me back to Jesus, that it's not, it wasn't about any of his giftings, not about any of his talents, not about any of his strengths or his personality, anything like that but it was about the Holy Spirit working in and through him. He always, he reflected Jesus, and then he always pointed me back to Jesus and constantly remind me that any of the fruit in his life wasn't his own, but um, the Lord's. So we see this idea of follow people, follow leaders who are following Jesus and point you to him. Um, On the contrary, we also see verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. In the same way, there's good leaders out there and good teaching, There's also bad leaders and bad teaching, right? Um, Good leaders and good teaching point you to the gospel, right? Uh, Bad leaders and bad teaching pull you away from the gospel. They add to it or they diminish from it. Um, And therefore, it's not good and it's not true. And then here in the text, he mentions this thing about foods, um, which is kind of confusing because you're like, where did that come from? I don't know. But he's addressing the fact that some people are falling into this type of legalism. Um, He's addressing the fact that there is a group of people here whose teachers are pushing them into a form of legalism and telling them to partake of a very specific spiritual diet. Um, Even reading commentaries on this, no one really knows what that diet was. It was literally like they were eating certain foods that they thought would give them special favor with the Lord or give them access to the presence of God. All these things that kind of made them, that they thought set them apart. Um, But as we see in verse 9, it was of no benefit to them, those people that were practicing this, because it wasn't 
the truth. It wasn't the gospel. It added to it. It diminished from it. It was bad teaching and therefore not fruitful in their relationship with the Lord. Um, And we'll see in verse 10 later, which we'll unpack, that it doesn't even allow them the right to approach the altar of Jesus, um, which is a big deal. Um, So there's that. Good leaders and good teaching. Now, we see um, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That seems like a great truth that you'd put on your coffee mug, right? Like, oh yeah, Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Like, great little truth, kind of a good little nugget, but it seems kind of random right here in this passage, right? Like, he's talking about obeying leaders and then don't eat certain foods. What does Jesus being unchanging have anything to do with it? I think or I know, I believe, that that verse links verse 7 and verse 9 together, right? Verse 8 naturally falls in between 7 and 9, and therefore has a purpose. It bridges the gap between uh, the two, and he's saying that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and everyone who tells you that and pushes you to the unchanging truth of the gospel is good teaching. And again, anyone who diminishes that or pulls you away from that and says, hey, this is the new way. This is the new thing. That's the old stuff. Like, come follow this. Like, this is the new sexy thing to do. That's not good teaching, right? And that's what he's saying. Like, you always got to be rooted in the unchanging truth of the gospel. Um, And I think it really is just a sweet truth to know that Jesus is unchanging, that he's as gracious, approachable, rich in compassion and mercy and gentleness now, today, as he was when he was walking on, on earth. Um, I also want to use this to give us a quick little recap of where we've been in the book of Hebrews. Um, verse, uh, chapter five or seven, you don't have to flip there. I'll give you a quick little snapshot of this. We see that yesterday when Jesus was in the flesh, in the days of his flesh, when he physically walked on earth, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who he was able to save him from death. He did that while he was here on the earth yesterday in the past. Today, here and now, we see in chapter 4, verse 15, that he is a high priest before the Father who is able to sympathize with our weakness because in every respect he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then forever, the same Jesus, quote-unquote, chapter 7, verse 25, always lives to make intercession for us. Sweet little reminder of where we've been in the book of Hebrews because this world is always changing. There are people in our lives who come and go. They change. We change. I no longer wear puka shells, right? But Jesus is the same. Um, Yesterday, today, and forever. His thoughts of us don't change. What he does for us doesn't change. He's still praying for us, interceding for us. He still goes before the Father for us. His feelings don't change for us. His mood toward us doesn't change. He won't walk out on us. He's not just here for a little chapter of our lives and then moves on, but he's present throughout all of it. And his heart of grace and mercy that he extends to you doesn't change no matter what you do. And that is just a sweet little truth that we have in this little section. Um, Before we move on, I'm telling you, there's a lot in this scripture. There's one more thing that I want to highlight in verses 7 through 9, and it's in verse 9. When you feel insecure and broken and weak and at your lowest moment, or you're just, I don't know, lost and confused, I think there's a great question for you in verse 9. What do you turn towards to strengthen your heart? For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Do you turn towards grace? Or do you turn towards something something that won't sustain you? Maybe some sort of self-help that you've heard that is all about relying on your own strength, which is never going to work, rather than on the strength of the Lord. I think a second good question that we can pick apart in here is how are you even trying to access and approach God? 
Is it by a list of do's and don'ts and legalism, kind of like the people here in this passage, that only lead to discouragement, that won't benefit you, that might even lead to shame because you can't uphold them? Or are you resting in his grace, knowing that you have access to God by grace through faith, not by any works that you produce on your own? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, foundational verse for my life, and that I go back to consistently, um, says, God is speaking. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. What are you turning to to strengthen your heart? Cool. That's that in verses 7 through 9. It's a lot. We'll move on. Um, We're not going to know what following leaders who are following Jesus looks like if we don't know what following Jesus looks like ourselves, right? So this next part, verses 10 through 14, uh, which we'll pick apart, is this idea that we've got to follow Jesus ourselves. Um, I'll pick it up right here. It says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And we'll stop right there. Um, Verse 10. I think that's a a great, sweet verse, um, and then we'll unpack the rest. But verse 10 is essentially saying, because of the gospel, we have insider access to the altar and receive grace upon grace. The people that are holding to this legalism, that are serving the tent, don't even have a right to eat there because they are following these strange teachings that are leading them away from the gospel of grace and therefore from the altar of Christ. Big deal. But we because of the gospel of grace, have access to that. We have access to saving and rescuing grace from our sins and our shortcomings. We have access to equipping and empowering grace in our weakest moments. That's huge stuff, y'all. Like, that should lead you to confidence. Let me run to that altar. Let me go receive that grace. Let me go outside the camp to experience that grace um, because— of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, we have a source of abundant grace, love, unchanging love, truth, and forgiveness. Um, And that leads me into explaining the rest of what's going on here, talking about bodies, animals' blood being shed, bodies getting burned outside a camp, what is the camp, um, what is the lasting city, all of these things. This is uh, a lot to unpack here, and he's assuming that you know a lot, and so I will kind of explain what's going on here. It's he's referring to a bunch of stuff that is happening in and set up in Leviticus 16. It's this old Jewish sacrificial system. You can go read it one day. It's pretty gnarly, but it tells you all the details of what this looked like. Um, if you're in the mood to read the Old Testament in your leisure time. Um, but this old Jewish sacrificial system is the way that people before Jesus came to earth and died on the cross got to experience a forgiveness of their sins and the presence of the Lord. So it was this very real deal, but it had a lot of intricacies and complexities to it, um, and seems very bizarre, especially in our context and day and age, because they would literally sacrifice animals. But what they would do is there would be every, once a year, this day of atonement. And atonement just means the payment of sins or forgiveness. That's an easy way to think of it. Um, And the payment of sin we see in Romans is death, right? Like that's what is, we're deserving of in our sin. And so obviously no one really wants to live, uh, or 
no one wants to die eternally and it's spend their eternity, you know, dead. They want to spend it alive. So they're like, okay, we need to do something about this. Day of Atonement. Um, the high priest, which we've talked about a little bit, would pay for everyone's sins, the sins of God's people, and forgive them of it through this sacrificial system. And what he would do is he would get um, a bull and a ram, and he would go inside the tent. And the tent, the tabernacle, is the area where you, back then, you could experience the presence of God. Um, where the presence of God dwelled is more specifically how, um, what that was. And so only the high priest could go into it. It wasn't for just the average Joe Schmo and everyday person, but he had to go in on behalf of the people. And he would take this bull and this ram, cleanse himself, go through all these purification processes, enter into the tent, go through more purification processes, and then enter into the Holy of Holies where the Lord dwelled. And then he would sacrifice this bull, shed its blood uh, for him and his family and for their sins, and that would forgive them. Once the blood was shed, he would take the body, which wasn't necessary for him anymore, and he would throw it outside the camp to be burned. He didn't need it. It was trash. Um, And then he would take the lamb, do the same thing, sacrifice its blood for the people, on behalf of the people, to atone for their sins, to forgive them of their sins, um, and make the payment, shed the blood, and again, takes the body, doesn't need it, throws it outside the camp to be burned. Um, They think that it's not useful at that point. So very bizarre system, sure, very inaccessible too. Like I said, the only person that could do that was the high priest. Um, you and I wouldn't have been able to do that. This whole process, the, the leaders um, of Israel, the sacrificial system that all these sacrifices they, they offered up on the Jewish day of atonement were all pointing God's people to this day to come. They're all pointing God's people to Christ who would suffer on their behalf one day to come. They were holding on to this promise that that would happen one day, and this was all prophetic for the sacrifice of Christ. Enter Christ, Jesus comes to earth, new system, better system, less bizarre. Um, Jesus, check this out, on the cross. No longer do we have to go through the Holy of Holies. Jesus was, you know, God, fully God. He sacrificed on the cross outside the gate. That's what it's saying right here, outside the camp, just like those bodies were taken. He shed his blood on behalf of all the people. Very accessible system. Didn't, you don't have to be any sort of special person to approach him. He was like, hey, if you want to know me, this is for you. I'm offering this to everybody. Um, sacrifice his blood, shed his blood on the cross. And outside the gate, again, this is all happening outside the gate, just like it was back then, was buried. And in the old sacrificial system, the bodies would stay there, right? Bodies don't come back to life. Spoiler alert, Jesus comes back to life, Right? big deal. Outside the camp, he's resurrected. He's alive and he's victorious to show that old system is gone now. There's a new and better system that I've created for you to access me, to experience this grace, to give you forgiveness for your sins for forever if you come to me outside the camp, because that is where Jesus is, outside the camp, outside the gate. He is alive. He is victorious over sin and death. All he's saying in this passage is if you go to him, you get to experience that grace and that life forever. Big stuff. Um, So, very accessible, new, better system. But, what do we do with that? Well, author of Hebrews is encouraging you to go to him. Um, Because he is outside the camp, he will always be accessible. I even thought of this earlier as I was explaining this in the 9 a.m. before this. There are some leaders in my life who I've never had access to, right? Like Ben. Ben just shuts his door on me all the time, and I can't follow him. Um, But there are others who allow them access to you, right? Jesus is one of the people who says, hey, I don't care who you are. 
I don't care what you've done. I don't care what mess you've gotten into. I don't care if you have the qualifications or not. You have access to me. Come to me. And that what, that's what this author is saying. Let us go to him then. If he is accessible, if he does offer this, then why aren't we running to him? Why don't we follow him there into this life? Um, then verse 14, which seems, again, like another random little kind of, he's throwing it out there. Of like, we have a city that isn't going to last. We're seeking a city that is to come. Um, here, we see the author remind us, um, he kind of calls back on some themes that we've already seen in the book of Hebrews, if you've been here, uh, been here with us. And if you haven't, you get to hear them now, which is really cool. Um, he's encouraging us to cling to promises that, again, we won't see the full fruition of here and now on this lasting earth. We cling to promises that we might not ever see on this side of eternity. Um, and that here and now, the Christian life takes endurance. Bearing the reproach of Jesus takes a lot of grit. Um, but we hold on to the promises of a lasting city, a kingdom that is to come. And if you were here last week, uh, or two weeks ago, Asher was talking about this idea of Mount Zion, this kingdom that would come. We hold on to the promise of a new heaven and new earth, um, which is so beautiful. Every time I think about it, a place where all things are made new. There's no more sorrow, no more grief, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more death. All things are made new. All things are restored. And there's only just life, peace, and wholeness, and love with the God of the universe for all of eternity. And so we hold on. We seek that kingdom. We hold on to the promise that that will come one day and that we will receive that kingdom and live in that kingdom as followers of Jesus. So that's verse 14, and it leads us into verse 15, where um, we start to see what we do with all this. Um, that as we watch other people pursue Christ, and as we pursue and follow Christ ourselves, there then comes a pretty natural response and way of life. Um, we start to see that following Jesus is a lifestyle. Um, and I don't think we think of that often, but it's a lifestyle that the he author of Hebrews, I think there's a lot to this lifestyle following Jesus, but the author of Hebrews gives us two specific examples to start on. Um, so let me read verse 15 through 16. He says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So he's saying, as you watch other people, as you pursue Jesus, your reaction is then, through him, to continually, A, offer up uh, praises, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, and then do good and share what you have. So this idea of following Jesus is a lifestyle of two things, of A, worship, and B, doing good and being hospitable. I'm going to break those down for you. Worship. Um, worship is fundamentally two things, is the way that I, I think of it. First thing is it's an outward expression, right? It's an outward expression uh, that keeps your eyes focused on Jesus, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It's an audible thing, right? We, just a second ago, we're all standing up singing audibly the fruit of lips that are acknowledging Jesus. You are the one thing that I want. You are good. You keep on getting better. It's this outward expression that keeps our eyes focused on Jesus and gets us to a place where we get to sit before the Lord and remember that he is good. Rem remind ourselves of truth. 
that he shed his blood on our behalf, um, that he rose again in victory to make forever payment for our sins and to free us from his death's grip and all of its shame and guilt. Um, and we sing these songs that rather than sin and death ruling our lives, he then rules our lives, right? We sing, Lord, you are king of my heart. Lord, you are the king of kings. My life is surrendered to you. And we do that with each other. We remind ourselves of that. It's the fruit of our lips. It comes out of our mouth, this outward expression, this lifestyle of worship, right? And we're going to get to do it again here in a little bit, and we do it every Sunday. And I think it's an important part of the Christian life to do that, to remind us of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and how he loved us. So worship is an outward expression, but I think it's also an inward submission. Um, Here's what I mean by that. I believe it's an inward submission that keeps our lives centered on the gospel, keeps our lives centered on this idea that like Galatians 2, 20 through 21 says that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Romans 12, 1, this idea that that says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This inward submission, reminding ourselves that my life is not my own. My life is now Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Lord, I surrender my life to you. Do with it what you want. It's both an outward expression of, Lord, you are good. Let me remind myself of that. But an inward submission of, Lord, you are Lord over my life. So, one aspect of following Jesus in our lifestyle as followers of Christ is worship. Second aspect, doing good, sharing what you have, or this idea of being hospitable. Um, if you were here for Ben's sermon last week, we talked about this idea of hospitality, so you get to hear it again, but from a different angle. And if you weren't here, you get to hear my take on it. Um, and I think, too, the reason he brings it up so back-to-back in chapter 13, he brings it up twice— I think whenever we see things in scripture, I believe whenever we see things in scripture that are repeated over and over again, it's because A, we're either very forgetful of it or it's really, really important and we need to be reminded of it. And so he brings up this idea of hospitality twice in his final word of the book of Hebrews. Um, And I think he does that because we need to reframe our idea of what hospitality and doing good looks like. When you think of hospitality, what do you typically think of? I'll give you a second as I sip my water. Cool. Glad you did some thinking. Um, You probably think of hosting people over to your home and your living room, right? And your parents hosting parties and them having all the things there for your guests to use. You're cleaning up the house. You're making sure there's enough toilet paper in the bathroom. There's food to eat. There's wine to drink, unless you're under 21, hopefully. Um, But you get the point. Like, it's this idea of, like, this hospitality is to entertain my guests, Gospel hospitality, hospitality the way Jesus did it, hospitality in the way of Jesus is not about entertainment, but it's about service. It's not an event that you put on your calendar, but a normal rhythm of life, an act of service and generosity to all the people around you. Being hospitable is about reaching out beyond the boundary lines of even your friendships, which gets a little uncomfortable. It's reaching out across the boundary lines of your bubbles, and it means going out beyond the camp of your comfort. And for those of you in this room uh, who are like on fire for the Lord, and you're like, man, I want to go make him known. I want to be on mission. I want to live a life that goes and makes disciples. I think hospitality is one of the most overlooked and yet primary ways we get to share the gospel. 
Um, Jesus. Jesus, again, was interruptible. He let people interrupt his lives. That is an aspect of hospitality in itself. He ate meals with people. He did his ministry over the table, eating meals in people's homes, at parties, drinking wine. Um, And he did his ministry through relationship with those who were outside the camp. A lot of people were like, dude, why are you hanging out with these people who are diseased, these people who are wicked and sinful? Like, you're holy and perfect. Shouldn't you be hanging out with holy and perfect people too? He said, no, I came to seek and save the lost. I'm going beyond the camp of what the norm is. And I'm beginning relationships and seeking to love and care for the hurting, the broken, the sinners, and the sufferers. And his life was interruptible, just like Aaron's was. I think that was an aspect of hospitality that I got to see through Aaron and that I try to imitate in my own life, of letting people interrupt my life, inviting people into my life that seemingly are beyond my camp just to get a glimpse of Jesus. My question is, do we do that, right? Do you have that kind of hospitality? I get this all the time. Like, I'm a pastor, and it's funny, A, just to get the reactions that I get whenever I tell people I'm a pastor. Like, some people put beers behind their backs, and others are like, oh, so you pray a lot. And then others are like, oh, so you're like a great evangelist, and you share the gospel all the time. Um, One of my strengths is not being able to be like this crazy good evangelist that shares the gospel. Like, I get to do it from a stage, and it's cool, and it's fun, and it's worshipful. But one-on-one, I've never been like, man, I just met you. Let me share the gospel with you kind of thing. I've always, that's never been a strength of mine. And some people are really gifted at doing that. But I'll say this, some of the best conversations I've had with people about Jesus and my experience of following Jesus, the good parts and the hard parts and how he's changed my life with people who aren't following him, at least yet, have been over meals, over a table, just talking, doing life together, in the car together, driving from point A to point B, and letting people interrupt my lives and giving them what I have, sharing with them what I have, which is A, a listening ear, my time, my energy, and just getting to love them. And the people that I've seen do that tends to work out really well. And I think, like I said, it's an overlooked aspect of life with Jesus, this idea of hospitality. And let me be clear on that too. All of this, a lifestyle of worship, of doing good, being hospitable, doesn't come easy to us. It's not the norm. It is counter-cultural living, right? Not everybody does this well. Um, Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and pleasing to him. We love other people without an agenda. We, we don't love others with an, ag- an agenda. We do it unconditionally. 1 John 4.19, another foundational verse in my life, says we love because he first loved us. Because he first showed me grace, I then extend grace. Because he first let me interrupt his life, I get to do the same to other people and care for them and love them, right? And we do these things because he first did them to us. Gospel hospitality. So that's the lifestyle of following Jesus. Um, The rest of the passage, honestly, is 17 through 19 are just kind of him repeating what he's already said, and then he has this benediction, and then verse 22 is final greetings, where he's basically just saying, hey, our boy Timothy has been released from jail. Let's throw a party for him. I'll see if he can come. Uh, Tell everybody I said, hey, grace be be with all of you. Peace out. Um, Verse 17 through 18, he's saying, obey your leaders. Submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls. 
because they're going to have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, because that would be of no advantage to you. And then he says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. So he's basically just saying, hey, again, follow leaders who are following Jesus. Um, follow Jesus yourself. That idea of obey your leaders, follow them as they follow Jesus. And then he's saying, pray for them too. Pray for them because they're imperfect people. They're not Jesus. They do change. They are not flawless. Um, pray for them that they would keep choosing Jesus and that they would be encouraged in their faith to continue to imitate the way of Jesus. And so that's basically all he's saying there. Um, and I'm going to read verses 20 through 21 to close and kind of wrap things up. Um, I'm going to read it over you guys. It's essentially his prayer as he closes the book of Hebrews, and it's beautiful, and it's rich, um, and there's a lot in there, and I just want to pray it over you because it's a sweet final word, but um, I just want to focus on the first two parts of it, and I'm going to go ahead and throw it up on the screen for you guys. I want you to notice in those first parts, and if you have your Bible, you can highlight this if you want to too. He says, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. I'll read the rest later, but I want to highlight those two things right now. The idea of, he uses the specific phrase, God of peace, and then this great shepherd of the sheep, right? I think he does that very intentionally. He could have said, may the God of righteousness, or may the God of grace, or may the God of literally any other word in the dictionary, but he chose the word peace, the word peace translates in the Hebrew uh, to this idea of shalom, and at least that's how it's being used here. And shalom is this old Hebrew word that basically means completeness and wholeness. Unbroken, just peace at its best. Everything is complete. Um, and I think he's saying we have a God of peace to remind us that in a relationship with Jesus, we get brought into and led into a life of peace and a life of wholeness. And then the next part is explaining why he does that and why he wants that for us, why he wants us to be led into a life of peace and wholeness. It's because he's the great shepherd of the sheep. That's kind of random. We haven't seen the word shepherd come in the book of Hebrews at all yet, but it echoes this idea from John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, we see Jesus call himself the good shepherd. I lead the sheep. The sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They know me. And I am the good shepherd that leads them into life and life abundant. Because there's bad shepherds out there. There's thieves, even, who come to kill, steal, and destroy. But I lead them into peace, into wholeness, into a life, and life to the full. And then it goes on in chapter 10. You can go read this. He says, I'm the kind of shepherd that will lay down my life for my own. I will lay down my life for my sheep. Jesus will lay down his life for you. He did lay down his life you. That is the kind of leader that he is. That is the kind of God that we have. Someone who loves you and gives himself up for you so that you can experience peace and wholeness and life forever in a relationship with him. To close, I think there's two people in this room, right? I think there's people who profess, yes, I follow Jesus. I'm a believer. My life has been changed by the gospel. And to you, Last encouragement, big theme of Hebrews, don't drift. In light of these things, in light of 
yes, he does lead me into a life of peace and wholeness and life abundant. And there is, his way is better. Jesus is better. My life is surrendered to him. Remember these things. Be encouraged. There is a city to come. There's promises to hold on to. Hold on to them. Endure. Would your confidence to continue in the way of Jesus be rooted in these unchanging truths of what he's done for you and that he has loved you and gave himself up for you? I think the second person in this room is someone who hasn't started a relationship with Jesus yet or is simply just unsure of where they're at with that. And that's so okay. I'm okay with that. I love that you're here and I'm glad that you're here and I don't think that it's a coincidence that you're here hearing this today. And if that's you or if you think that's you, I want you to ask a very, very simple question. I want you to ask yourself the question, even as we sing worship songs here right now, if you just need to sit down and do business with the Lord, do it. But ask yourself, how would my life change if I decided to follow Jesus? This man who came down to earth, wrapped himself up in skin, shed his blood on my behalf, paid for my sins for me so I don't have to die and live in eternity dead, but I actually have life now. He offers me life. What would that change? that he set me free from my sin to offer me a life of peace and a life of wholeness and a life of freedom and an abundant life. What about my life would change? I just want you to ask that simple question that if I surrendered my life and followed this kind of leader, and if I made him king of my heart, what about my life would change? So that's where I want to end. Um, I'm going to pray over us, but I'm also going to read uh, the benediction to do that. So Um, I'm going to invite the worship band back up on stage. um, And congrats, you just finished the book of Hebrews. Um, Verse 20, as I pray. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Father, we love you and we need you. Lord, would you remind us that you are so worth following. Father, I thank you for the people in our lives that imitate and reflect your life and your truth to us and your grace and your mercy. And, um, and Lord, I just pray that even now as we get these songs sung over us and we proclaim and we worship um, with our lips, Lord, that you would remind us of how sweet you are and how sweet life is with you. Um, and that you would put it on our hearts to keep choosing you because you are better and you do offer abundant life in a way that nothing else can. Um, Lord, would you remind us about, of the sweetness of your grace in our life um, and that you make all things new and that that promise that there will be a new heavens and a new earth where no more sorrow, no more sin, and no more death is a thing, but just life with you. Would all of that taste so sweet to us even in these next moments? Um, Lord, and would it change our lives? Would we not walk out of here unchanged because of your unchanging truth and your unchanging love and your forgiveness? Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We need you. And it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen.